Hey everybody, Randy here. Before we get into today's interview, I want to quickly thank not one, but two sponsors of today's episode. They are Herbal Active and Precision Pro Golf. I'm thinking just a couple dozen more now and I might catch my guy Ricky Fowler. I'm teasing. Uh, but no, seriously, thank you to Herbal Active and Precision Pro Golf. I'll be back about midway through today's episode to tell you more about Precision Pro. Uh, but for now, I want to quickly talk about Herbal Active. If you're looking for a stocking stuffer, for a spouse maybe, check out HerbalActive.com. U-R-B-A-L-A-C-T-I-V. Their CBD products are 99.5% pure CBD. They contain absolutely zero THC. They're legal in all 50 states. I know uh, Tron, who is not with me today, He every time I see him, I say, Tron, how are you sleeping? He just sleeps better and better all the time. I know a big part of that is he credits Herbal Active. He's been doing it for a while. He does, I believe, the drops, the liquid the liquid drops. Uh, he'll take those in the afternoon, and then he'll chase it with one of the mints in the evening. Uh, they also make a balm that you can apply you know, anywhere you're sore. kind of helps relax the muscles. So if you're looking for a little gift this, this holiday season, something that, you know, for the office maybe, for a spouse, you name it, or just for yourself, check out HerbalActive.com. Again, U-R-B-A-L-A-C-T-I-V. Dot com and be sure to use the code trapdraw20 i'll get you 20 percent off your order trapdraw20 thank you to herbal active and now on to today's interview with terry gannon Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to another episode of the Trap Draw podcast. I am live on site at the CME Globe LPGA Tour Championship in Naples, Florida. I have a very special guest, somebody I've wanted to talk to for a very long time, Terry Gannon. Uh, he is employed by NBC Sports, golf commentator. I'm sure everybody listening to this knows him as a voice on the PGA and LPGA Tour, uh, also calls Olympic figure skating for NBC Sports as well as other Olympic events. And honestly, Terry, I was looking through your, what, what you've done. You do it all. I, my <laughs> first question literally to you was, first of all, I should say, hey, how, how are you? Great to be here, man. <laughs> Thank hey, you. I, I, I wanted to quiz you. Name five sports quickly that you haven't broadcast. I haven't called hockey. Okay. What else you got? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> exactly. Uh, um, yeah, I know. It is, it is amazing the, the chances that I've gotten. And, and I never envisioned any of it. I mean, not only you know, the, the sports that we all watch and some that we don't, but I mean, back in the days of wide world of sports, you, you're talking ski flying in Slovenia, you're talking mountain biking in Vail. I mean, there are some sports that I didn't even know existed that uh, 
I've been a part of. So it's been pretty cool. Yeah. Okay. Um, just just a tremendous resume. I, I would like to ask you about a few of them as as we get going. But um, for my personal excitement, the the reason why I so am looking forward to this conversation is your history as a basketball player. Mm -hmm. And for those who who don't know, um, you played for four years at NC State in the early '80s. Uh, you were part of the national championship team in 1983. The the cardiac the cardiac pack, uh, one of the most iconic finishes I, I think in in tournament history. Appreciate you bringing that up. Yeah, Appreciate yeah, exactly. Um, and so I, I want to chop it up and talk a little hoops with you. My first question along those lines is. You grew up the son of a basketball coach. I assume he played a big part in, in your development as a basketball player. Is, yeah, is that fair? Yeah, the time I was, you know, well, I think my mom probably, she tells me she put a basketball in my hand first before I could walk. Uh, so she gets the credit. But my dad was a coach. We lived it, you know, and, and, and he coached basketball. That was his main thing. But he coached baseball. He coached football as well at times and was a sports fanatic. And that, that was my life growing up. But I always played basketball, went to college on a scholarship, was a part of a great moment and, and was so lucky, I can't even tell you. But I was always gonna coach. That's what I was gonna do. I kind of fell into this job as a broadcaster talking for a living and uh, was open to all avenues and never looked back. And here we are more than three decades later. What kind of coach was your, was your father? He was, a, well, I played for a guy named Jim Valvano who was the most energetic, enthusiastic, uh, smartest, funniest guy you've ever met. So motivating, and my dad was a lot like that. He he was he was an Irish um, guy who you know was proud of his roots and loved his player. His players loved him. He was a player's coach, and so he would have parties at our house every Saturday night after the games, and they would all come over. and The players loved to spend time there, and and they would pick me up after school when I was in grade school, and take me down to practice. I had my own practice uniform and I yeah. would shoot around on the side while practice was going on. And um, he was a lot like the guy I played for in college um, and, and lived it. To the, to the day he died and he passed away with 14 years ago, he spent his day watching and caring about sports. And every conversation we had kind of centered around sports. And yeah, we talk about the real things too and important things, but it always get back to sport. Hey, did you see what the White Sox did today? Holy cow, what'd they take the guy out in the seventh inning for? They were up, eh, that kind of thing. Yeah, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, but I believe you grew up outside Chicago. Joliet, Illinois. How yeah. did you end up at NC State? Got recruited by Big Ten schools to play basketball. Marquette, Ray Majerus, uh, or Rick Majerus, sorry, was there then, was the head coach. Um, and, and the one school in the ACC that came a calling was NC State and Jim Valvano. And I, I was a huge Notre Dame fan growing up. We were at every Notre Dame football game from the time I was five years old to the time I went away to college. Knew the players, went in the locker room every game. So my dream was to go to NC, uh, Notre Dame. Digger Phelps recruited me and then in the end took another kid instead of me. Fine. That's the way it works out. But it was serendipity because... It allowed me to choose NC State, and, and V came in, Jim Valvano came in, five minutes into his home visit, my dad said, uh, you're going there. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and I'm like, yeah, I think so. And uh, never had been south of Comiskey Park and was going to school in south and stepped foot on campus and, and loved it from the very first minute. How, how would you describe your game? 
I was a shooter. What, shooter? Okay. Was, it's very, really easy. I was, I was a three-point shooter. Before the three-point shot, my sophomore year, which was the championship year, the NCAA let conferences experiment with a shot clock and a three-point line. It was the very beginning of both of them. And the ACC put it in. There were several con- conferences around the country that did that. And uh, it was a short three-pointer. It, it literally was inside the top of the key. You know. 17 feet, nine inches. There you go. Yeah. 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 You remember. <laughs> so I, I mean, that was, I was born for that. The minute I heard it, I was at home in Joliet in my backyard. We had a court and I drew, my dad and I went out and drew the 17, nine line and I never went inside of that and pretty much didn't go inside of that all year that year. <laughs> well, and what you are not mentioning and, and I'll brag on you a little bit is uh, unofficially, because the three-point line, like you said, was a little different from yeah. conference to conference. But you did lead. I, I think you shot 58, 59 percent yeah. three-point percentage uh, that year, uh, which would have led the nation. Do you do you think? Do you ever uh, rue not being born? You know, <laughs> four years later, maybe because because the NCA uh, Institute, I believe, in 1987 was the official 19 feet nine inch across all of college basketball. Right. And to be honest, I never went inside 19 feet nine inches either because <laughs> I'm six foot shooting guard and playing against Michael Jordan and James Worthy and Perkins and those guys. I wasn't going to go inside. Yeah. I mean, they took it out my junior year and in the last two years, you look at it, you go, that's a third of my points out the window. That's, that's gone. So yeah, that's the one thing I hold against my parents. I was born too early. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Um, what was, I, I'm so, you know, for, for folks who, who maybe aren't aware, uh, I, I'm curious what that transition was like from high school to college and going into the ACC, which was, you know, obviously a, a power conference. I mean, you, you played against Michael Jordan, James Worthy, Len Bias. I mean, some of the best of the best. Al Sampson, yeah. Mark Price, and Sally at Georgia Tech. Everybody Johnny Dawkins. Johnny Dawkins at Duke. That was the start of the great run for Mike Krzyzewski. He started... His first year at Duke was the same as Jim Valvano's first year at NC State. Um, yeah, in many ways, and Mike Krzyzewski will tell you this, it was the golden age of ACC basketball, maybe college basketball, because then players stayed for at least three years. I mean, Michael Jordan stayed on campus at North Carolina for three years before turning pro. So you had players who were players of the year, and, and they were there for three or four years. So the depth in college basketball was unbelievable. And you kind of, you know, as an athlete, you do what you do. You know this as, as a basketball player uh, or any golfer out here. What you do is what you do, and you try to just stay in that and say, it doesn't matter who I'm playing against. This is what I do. I shoot the rock. But it takes a little while for that adjustment. When you look across, and there's number 23 for North Carolina, it's Michael. Um, and at some point, the game slows down for you to the point where you can compete and you feel like you belong. And then we had some success. I mean, those teams, my sophomore year, for example, we beat, we beat Carolina twice. We beat Ralph Sampson twice, who was the player. He was one of the great players ever in college, and he had injuries and didn't become what he could have in the NBA, but, you know, seven foot five and just did everything. Uh, and there were times early on when you look across and you think, yeah, I don't belong. I'm not quite here. And you get over that and, and you compete and it, it works out. So it, it was really 
the golden age and I look back and I didn't realize how great it was at the time because you think it's going to keep going that way. And now college basketball is different. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It's uh but you also had Dean Smith, you know, a hall of fame coach on that other sideline for North Carolina. You had Bobby Kremens at Georgia tech. You had great coaches, great players, and you were a part of it. And the, the, the thing looking back on it, I do kind of shake my head at the fact that you're a kid growing up in your backyard in the wee hours of the night, and it's five degrees in the Chicago area, and you shovel the snow to get your, your shots in that day and work on your game, and you dream of being a part of something at a high level, something, whatever that turns out to be, playing on TV and having your friends and family watch you. And now looking back, I got to be a part of not only that and the ACC at its zenith, but also a memorable team that won a championship. And I can't believe how it worked out, how lucky I was. I, if folks have not watched, there's a, an awesome 30 for 30 documentary called Survive in Advance, which chronicles, you know, not only that season, but a, a lot it's of... It's on Delta right now if you're taking a flight. There you go. Yeah. Cross country. Yeah, I, I know it's on, well, ESPN Plus and maybe even on Netflix still. Um, but, but it's out there. I would... It, it's... It, it follows that season and really gets into, you know, the chemistry you guys had on that team and obviously Coach Valvano and, and it and it follows a little bit after that season too. But man, that that is such a good documentary. Um Thanks. what what was the hardest what was the hardest uh environment that you guys played in? Because I'm trying to think, was was Duke well, was Cameron Cameron at that point? Cameron was Cameron. But I love playing at Cameron and we happened to beat those guys quite a lot back then. They were good. They were but they were just starting to get what they are now. In fact, there's another 30 for 30 out, the 1986 team with Johnny Dawkins that came in, yeah. and Billis and those guys, that saved Mike Krzyzewski's job. And so they, those guys were just arriving on campus. So they were good, and they came off, what, in 79, they went to the Final Four with Jaminski and Banks. Um, but we, we were beating them pretty regularly, so we loved going to camp. Cameron was unbelievable, because it, it's a small place. And if you've never been to a game in Cameron Indoor Stadium and you're a basketball fan or a sports fan, forget even a basketball fan, you, you got to go one time because there's no place like it. It's loud, yes, but what's unique about it is every cheer is not choreographed, but they, they all it's in unison. And then it gets quiet during a free throw and you hear an individual yell out something that is really funny and witty. Um, <laughs> And so to play in that environment, I remember times during free throws, you're standing there and you hear, and you start laughing on the court. I mean, you're, you're aware of it. It's not just noise, white noise. It is literally comments that you hear. Um, so to win and, and have that going on, it was really a lot of fun. The toughest place to play for, for us was Carmichael, which is the old North Carolina. We played against... Dean Smith and Michael Jordan and Perkins and Worthy, and that had something to do with it too, but um, in the small place that they had before the Dean Dome. And they would turn up the heat. It'd be like 110 in the locker room, the visiting locker room, not the home locker room. And it was tiny. It was packed. They were great. And you just couldn't win there, no matter what you did. I used to hate going there. It was just a nightmare. Yeah. Uh, was, I, I mean, I think... The answer is probably Jordan, but was, was he the was he the best guy you, you played against? 
I mean, I know yeah, he turned I, out to be the best, maybe. I'd, but I'd have to say yes. He wasn't what he became. Yeah. But he was still the player of the year in college basketball. So people kind of overstate uh, his stats uh, being low when he mm-hmm. played for North Carolina. That was the way they played. But because they played that way and as a team and, and shared the ball, it wasn't like you were afraid Michael Jordan was going to go off for 40 on a given night. You know, and he went well beyond that in the NBA. Uh, but he could really embarrass you. The, but he wasn't the only one. He, I mean, that, what they had, it was incredible. But one of my favorite jokes was the only person who could stop Michael Jordan in college Dean is Smith. Dean Smith. Right, yeah. exactly. <laughs> Hold him to under 20 points. But, y'all, but Lenny Bias was Michael Jordan waiting to happen in the NBA. And it was just tragic, his death. Um, Larry Bird stuck around to play with Lenny Bias. That's how good he was. So there are certain guys who you'd not be afraid to play against, but you know they could really make you look bad. There are other guys who were very effective and really good players, but they weren't going to embarrass you. Bias was one. Jordan was one that you could really be embarrassed at any given moment out on the floor. That athleticism is just, yeah. yeah. If you're not, you know, I know exactly what you mean. Like, it, it just catches you off guard sometimes. It, it, well, and Lenny, I mean, the first game, I, I was, when I was just starting out as a broadcaster, I was there then the year after I graduated, and he did embarrass North Carolina in the Dean Dome early on. I mean, they, they just couldn't do anything with him. But Samson could do, Sam, Ralph Samson, and people forget you know, fans of today, because you, th- you think about the athleticism today and the way the game's played and the Warriors and the effect that they have had, and the game going up and down and spreading out. And um, you, you tend to think, well, back in the day, they weren't the athletes they are today. Let me tell you, that crew, they were athletes. I mean, every bit as good as anybody playing today. Yeah. Did you, were you a talker on the court? No, I was a stoic. Uh, take it way back. There's a guy who played quarterback at Notre Dame who I got to know and I idolized, Tom Clemens. Okay. He led Notre Dame to a national championship, 1973, against Alabama, out of his own end zone, 31 yards to Robin Weber on and out to seal the game. He was the coolest customer. And now he's, a, he's an assistant coach in the NFL. He's been a coach for many years since. Anyway, played in the CFL. He never showed emotion. Right? So he was stoic. He, you never knew how he was feeling came through in the clutch all the time. And that's who I idolized and what I idolized. So I, tr- I became that on the court. I wouldn't talk. I wouldn't trash talk. Michael would be trash talking. You know, you wouldn't answer. But then I got to NC State, and I've got this crazy Italian from New York on the bench who, who, as soon as the ball goes up, he is a mile a minute talking and yelling and jumping and all over the place and loved emotion. And so he kind of drew that out of me. I, I, I came, became more of that because of Jim Valvano. Uh, but I didn't know what to do with him at first. I didn't know how to deal with him at first because I had never been that way. And, and he's going crazy as soon as the ball went up. Was Coach Valvano tough on you? Would, would he ride you pretty good he in practice? Or? He was, v was tough on everybody in his own way, though. It wasn't like he was – he yelled, yes, but he wasn't a Bobby Knight disciplinary yeller you know, that's not how he motivated you. It was at a level where if you didn't play, you didn't perform, there was a ass-to-bench relationship that was going to happen. <laughs> you were going to yeah. sit. That's how he motivated you, right? <laughs> yeah. um, but but you, he was the type of presence, and, and there are very few people that you're around this way, or I have been around in my life, 
that every minute you just didn't want to let him down. You didn't want to lower yourself in his eyes, you know, be, be less than he thought you could be. And that was true whether you were playing for him in a game, whether it was practice, or whether you were sitting at the dinner table with him in a group, you had to bring your A game. Mm-hmm. Or he was, he was acerbic and, and biting. And I'll give you an example. So I start my broadcasting career, one of the, and, and one of the first things I was doing was um, ACC basketball. And after the game, this particular one, it was an NC State game, it was my job to go interview the coach, which happened to be Jim Valvano. So I go to him, and there's eh, about 10 reporters around him asking questions, and I work my way in. They throw it to me live, and, and uh, I say, okay, I'm here with Jim Valvano. He's surrounded by a ton of reporters right now, but I'm coming. And he looks up. He says, Terry. A ton of reporters? What do you mean a ton? You're a two-time academic All-American. What kind of word is a ton? They're not, they're not overweight. Well, Joe's a little bit overweight. But other than Joe, they're, they're not overweight. They're not fat. What do you mean ton? And you're like, okay, you're let me just, think of a different word <laughs> yeah. here. That was him. You know, So you were challenged every minute you were around him to be your best. Mm-hmm. Uh, something, so I'm 36. My enduring memories of Coach Valvano are... Twofold, right? After you guys won the, the title in 1983, him running around the court in sheer joy, looking for somebody to hug. Right. And then, of course, the SB speech in 1993. Um, I, I'm curious, though, ha- have you, you know, you're still really connected to the, the game of basketball. Are there coaches today that, that remind you of Coach Valvano in, in certain ways? I'd have to really think of one in Here's the tough thing. I cannot get across to you the full scope of him, his personality, and who he was as a person in his presence. I, I haven't found one, put it that way. Okay. Um, because he was, he, he, he always joked that he wanted on his tombstone, I, James T. Valvano, being of sound mind and body, spent it. And that's the way he lived his life. Yeah. And every second was lived that way. And so whether it was, if I wasn't in the game, I always wanted to sit as close to him on the bench as I could because I just was entertained. I wanted to hear. Because literally the ball went up and he started talking. And he never stopped until the end of the game. And everything he was thinking, he would vocalize. After the game, when I was, an, I, be, I was an assistant coach for one year. I was a grad assistant. That's how I started after I got out. And um, one of my jobs was, for home games, as soon as the buzzer went off, I would go get fried chicken, cigars, and wine for the coaches' meeting after the game. <laughs> and then he would welcome in anybody who was in town. And, and oftentimes, whether it's Al McGuire who was doing the game back then, or Billy Packer, or even people... Not, not in the world of sports and celebrities who might be friends of his and they would come and then he would hold court with a cigar in one hand and a wine in the other for, till 2, 3 in the morning and you were not allowed to leave if you were an assistant coach until he left which you didn't want to anyway <laughs> yeah. and he entertained the entire time challenged you the entire time made you think the entire time and so that Espy speech as powerful as it was, and it was, and it's what people remember. He was so sick 
that he could barely get to that dinner that night, that award ceremony that night. And then he got up, and as soon as the mic was in front of him, he turned it on, and, and, and that's what he could do. But we saw that from him all the time, like every pregame speech, every halftime speech, postgame. That was him. And I remember one time they, they actually were filming it for a special that they did on him. We were playing Virginia. It was a key game. It was a big game. And he starts going off. And he's, he, now he's talking about great civilizations that have been around and the founding fathers <laughs> and, 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 you know, great speeches in history, nothing to do with basketball. And at some point, the assistant coaches are like, uh, coach, we got like three minutes. We got to yeah. be up there. Uh, we're due. And he finally wrapped it up. But you didn't want it to end. But I wish I would have had a cell phone like we do now and, and just turned it on and taped all those things because that, it, that SB speech didn't surprise any of us who were close to him, played for him, or spent time around him. I, in, in my prep for, for this interview, I, I came across something that I thought, in my view, was, was a real testament to him. And I believe you've credited it for why, you know, maybe you're not in coaching today. And it was something along the lines of, you know, basketball, you can't let basketball consume you. Um, and, and for somebody who obviously coached at, you know, one of the highest levels of the game and, and had tremendous success, yeah. it's a really interesting comment because especially in this day and age, you don't get people that candid and I feel like secure enough to admit yeah. that they have outside interests. Yeah, he, he lived his life that way, and it got across to his players. It was really something that he not only preached, but he lived. And so you saw the example of it. He was into everything. I mean, he was not in any way just a basketball coach with blinders on. And I think most are. It, they, they might it have seems other that way. interests, but they live it. I mean, this, yeah. this is who they are. It defines them, and for good reason, because it takes that oftentimes to succeed at that level. But he was – I mean, he had businesses. He, he had a whole business that was, he had a sculptor on staff and a painter. And, and like the, uh, the sculpture of the first Kentucky Derby winner in Churchill Downs in the paddock, is his, it's, it's his business, that did, <laughs> his guy that did that. And he was an English major and was a voracious reader. And, and in pregame and halftime speeches, he would quote poets and writers uh, you know, not just Shakespeare, the ones you hadn't heard. And, and I remember one time um, I, <laughs> I got to correct him because he would quote historians too. And he quoted David Toynbee. And I said, excuse me, coach, it's Arnold Toynbee. And he turned to me without, you know, missing a, a beat. said, yeah, but what's his middle name? <laughs> I, I, I don't know. You got me there. Yep, it was David, which it probably wasn't, but that was his comeback. Um, so as a player, he got that across to you. He didn't want basketball to be your entire life. Many coaches do. They expect that of their players. He wanted you to be involved in all the different things. And for me, first in deciding not to be a basketball coach, but to accept an offer that came my way to go into TV was in, in large part due to him and his example. And also then once I got into TV, you know, I didn't say, okay, this is what I'm going to be doing 10 years from now, I'm going to be sitting there Monday night for the national championship game doing a basketball game. I was open to whatever came my way. When they signed a contract with ABC and you get a call on Tuesday, they say, hey, listen, we want you to go do a figure skating event in Tokyo next weekend. You're like, huh? 
what? I know who Peggy Fleming is. That, that's the extent of my knowledge. But it's that brief moment where you either say, you're crazy, I can't do a figure skating event, or you accept it. You say, why not? And that's kind of what he was all about, those two words, why not? Mm-hmm. Somebody's got to do it. Why not? Me. Mm-hmm. Why not? Uh, somebody's going to win a championship. Why not? Us. And he believed it. And so when they called me up to do play-by-play on college football on ABC that Saturday, and it was a Monday, that first thought is, hey, guys, I- I've never done play-by-play on football, and you want me to do an ABC game this week? You go, why not? Okay. And then you scramble and panic and figure out how to do play-by-play in football that week, and you either sink or swim. But it was all because it was because of him and how he lived, what he it, taught us. Yeah, that's, that's really – I think that's the most special. I, I think the, the great coaches are those who – kind of use the, the experience of sport to enrich, you know, and there beyond. Are, and there are plenty beyond, of those out yeah, there. I for think sure. the great ones really do that and, and use their sport as an example of life uh, and, and want you to take whatever you learn there mm-hmm. to life. Yeah. And I think, you know what, I, I think it helps you become a better player in whatever sport you're into. For sure. I, I wholeheartedly agree the world's not going to end if i don't make this birdie putt at 17 to get within one i am a firm believer in sometimes perspective is you know bringing that perspective into a a match or a moment where you know it's so easy to get wrapped up in like this free throw it's life or death it's like yeah it's nice to have a perspective where it's like to 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 really understand you know it's a passion it's it's um you know, it, it's certainly important because of the time invested, but to know that, you know, and, and I think that comes with having other interests and being well-rounded. Um, I agree. I, here's, cause it's a, it's a fine line in terms of how you deal though, what you project to everybody else. Right. This is my own personal opinion and what I like. So this is not, I'm saying this is right or wrong. This is what I like. I do like athletes though, who in, talking to the rest of us out here do accept the fact that this is a big game coming up. Yeah. This is a big round of golf coming up. And they're honest about that. And they jump in head first and say, yeah, th- th- tomorrow t- I'm in the lead at a major tomorrow is the most important round of my life. Now it's one thing doing that to everybody else instead of saying, well, I'm just going to take it one day at a time, one shot at a time. Come on now. But when you're out there competing is when you have to have that mindset that this is not the end of the world in that moment, moment to moment, like on Monday night in front of 50 million people for a national championship, right? You go out there. If you are thinking this is going to define my life for the rest of my life and you're really thinking about that, you're done. If you're thinking, I wonder what I'm going to watch this afternoon while I kill time before I go... You know, you know what I'm saying? It, mm-hmm. you, you have to take that mindset within. Um, but I do like the athletes who will talk to us and engage. Yeah. And, and I will say the, the great coaches, in my opinion, are, you know, they're, they're yes, it's X and O's and, and prep and strategy. But so much, so much of it, too, is, is, you know, you're almost playing psychologist for, for no your, your group of players. And, and to, to your point, being able to almost calm the nerves of your team, 
because I think you lead from the front, right? If 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 a championship game won't define your life, then yeah, I, I think you you pass that on to to your team in, in some respects. Well, and, and 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 in that championship game, fans of today won't remember. If they watch thirty for thirty, they'll get it. Uh, we were huge underdogs against the team Houston, who had two future Hall of Famers. Clyde Drexler and Akeem Olajuwon. They were five slam and jamma. They were the most talented team in the country by far. They were an NBA team, basically. I mean, they were incredible. Huge underdogs. And for two days, Jim Valvano, with the media, talked about how there was no shot clock back then, remember, that year. If we get the opening tip, we might not take a shot until Tuesday. <laughs> we're going to hold the ball. we got to slow this down, you know. And that's what we thought. So you, you get to the arena, you go shoot around for a while, you come back in, now it's time. And you, the entire scouting report is up on the board. And you, I've told this story, but it, it does illustrate what we're talking about. And we sit down, everybody's so nervous, and he comes in and he paces back and forth for dramatic effect, you know. Finally, he turns around, he grabs an eraser, and he erases the entire scouting report, <laughs> all the X's and O's for the game, right? You're going, what the hell is he doing? And he throws the eraser away, and he turns to us and says, if you think we're going to hold the ball in front of 50 million people for the national championship, you are nuts. We're going to go out there and kick their ass. Everybody jumped up. Everybody started yelling. That was all we needed to hear because what we needed to know is that he believed in us. He believed we were going to win that game. Mm-hmm. And he was a guy who knew exactly what you needed to hear before any moment. And it wasn't about X's and O's. It wasn't about a zone defense. Who's going to match up with a lot? Nope. It was, I believe you're going to win this game. Mm-hmm. And we did. I love that story. Hey, Randy here again, real quick. I mentioned at the start of this episode, I wanted to thank Precision Pro Golf for being a sponsor question for you guys what's the one item in your bag that you're going to use the most during a round it's not a putter although lord knows i've been there maybe your favorite iron nah, you're not using that that much it's your range finder all golfers need a range finder they can trust to know the precise distance to their target for nearly every shot whether you're on the tee box or in the fairway uh, go to precisionprogolf.com Again, that's precisionprogolf.com. Use the coupon code NOLANGUP. That'll get you a discount off your purchase. What I really like, I've had the, I've been fortunate enough to be able to use Precision Pro Rangefinder now. One, it locks onto the target so much easier. I've, I can't tell you, I've used other rangefinders and I've, I've spent what seems like a couple minutes just trying to, you know, get the laser to lock onto the flag. Not so with Precision Pro rangefinders. Very easy to find your target. The other thing I really, really, really like is it has a built-in magnet. So you can just put it right on the side of your cart. Very convenient to get to during the round. Um, And I do want to say one more thing. Precision Pro Golf, they offer free battery replacement services for the life of your rangefinder. So... Once you buy it, you're not, you know, you're not worrying about, oh, I got to get a new battery. I got to, you know, what if it breaks? No, there you're getting a rangefinder, and you're also getting lifetime service. So go over precisionprogolf.com. Uh, they make great gifts for all the golfers in your life. And uh, now back to the interview with Terry Gannon. Hey. 
Um, well, switching gears a little bit, you, you mentioned uh, the call early in your career to go broadcast uh, figure skating in Tokyo, I believe. <laughs> I, talk, talk to me, and and you know we've mentioned you've done so many different sports. What, what's the what's that process like for you uh, to pick up a new sport? What, what's the learning and the prep? Uh, what, what does that entail? Seriously, first thing first, you start from the ground up. Some sports you're a fan of, you've watched, but others you have no basis for, you, you have no perspective on it. And, and I go back to you know, ski jumping or ski flying or the wide world of sports stuff early on in my career, which was a great training because you literally had to start with like ski jumping for dummies and go figure out what the heck they're even doing out there. And then you start to watch. The biggest thing for me, and I started doing gymnastics a year and a half ago, which I'll be doing gymnastics at the Olympics now coming up in Tokyo. You go back and you watch tape and you watch how others have done it. And you don't copy them. You got to be yourself once you get on the air. But I want to, I need to know the language. Mm-hmm. I need to know how you make that transition from beam over to floor. Okay, we're going next. We're going to see Simone Biles uh, on bars. How do you make that transition to set that up, the way people talk in that sport? Then you start to research the people you're actually going to watch and do your homework on their backgrounds and why we should care. Biggest thing for me on TV is to give you, the viewer, a reason to care. Why do you give a darn about this person? And you try to set up every telecast that way or every person in gymnastics that you go to that someone doesn't know. Why do I care about this person right now on high bar? And it all flows from there. You get that in and then you start researching your actual events and the recent history of who won the last world championship, who won the last national championship, and all that stuff. And what I do in any sport, and I, and I do it in golf every week, I, on the computer, Thank God I learned how to do the computer at some point because it used to be handwritten. And one, one time, actually, 30 seconds before a tip, it was a Marquette game. It was in Milwaukee. No, it wasn't. It was a Bucks game. Anyway, NBA game. And they sing the national anthem as they stood up. The cord hit my coffee, and it went all over my oh, board, oh, which was in ink, and it was all gone. I, <laughs> I had nothing in front of me to call the whole Flying blind. Blind, man. So I, I got to the computer now, and that doesn't happen. But I'll make a sheet where I pull in stuff from everywhere. You guys, wherever I get it, mm-hmm. and then it goes in front of me. And I don't necessarily have the time, especially in basketball, doing a basketball game or football game and whatnot, to look down that often. But it's the act of me p- pulling it from here and putting it, inputting it into that Excel program that puts it in my brain, and hopefully I remember it, um, no matter the sport. But it, but Certain sports are, are harder than others, but it's the same basic thing. Tell the story, make the people at home want to spend the time with you and enjoy it. Sit on the couch with them and watch this thing and bring them along and enjoy it with them. And then do the athletes justice, document the action. One sport that I've gotten more and more, um, I don't know if into is the right word, but I really enjoy watching it each summer is the Tour de France. Yeah. And I know you called 
three of them. Most I, incredible event I've ever been. I was going to ask you what. Holy cow! Yeah, it just seems Blew like me away. because one, it's you know over how many weeks and twenty one days prologue and three weeks, and you are in a different place every day. You move with the riders, the peloton. So. For, I did for ABC three years, 95, 96, 98. It's a long time ago. But it was Miguel Indurain at the beginning. And then actually the last year, my broadcast partner on ABC was Lance Armstrong. Was, I was going to ask, yeah, that would have been okay. And uh, I remember standing on the Champs-Élysées the last day as we waited, were waiting for the writers to come in and waiting to do our on-camera as they come by and everything and just chatting. And I'm like, you know, he had cancer and he was – it was the year before he came back and I uh, said, yeah, I want to watch you next year. I don't want to stand here and talk to you. And he was like, nah, I don't think I'll ever ride in this race again. Three weeks, mountains, it's too tough. And the next year was the first year he won it. Now, some other things have taken place. Yeah, <laughs> unfortunately. Yeah, but, yeah. yeah. But um, that thing is such a part of the fabric, first of all, of France, that country, that you experience France like you never will any other time from the small villages to the mountains to the large cities. And then what they do, no matter what your argument is, over, I, it's, it doesn't seem humanly possible every day. You are worn out driving the route every day and working, where at the end of three weeks, you're ready for a month in bed. I can't imagine doing it. You know, they... Elp Duez on a bike. It's it's on. It, it really is like you said. It's like it's superhuman. I, I and and then there were moments from it too that I remember. Like there's certain moments that you'll always remember. And one was Miguel Indurain, who was a star of Spain, and he was from the Pamplona area, this little village right outside of Pamplona. And so they they his last year in the tour, they sent the route through Pamplona, and it was. You know, like the old ticker tape parades when the guys came back from landing on the moon, you know, in, in New York. There were people hanging out of every window, streamers coming out. It was, there was chanting and singing songs as he arrived like a conquering hero 300 years ago, having conquered Europe. Um, <laughs> it, it, it was really cool. And it, not having any background in it. Imagine how that would blow you away, being a part of that oh, for the first time. Yeah, I, I, I can't imagine. Like, I, I, I think, um, you know, the, the, the presentation today continues to be uh, around that race is really impressive, just the logistics and how they are able to capture and show that race. Well, there are cameramen hanging on the back of a motorcycle that, that zip along past the peloton are going downhill at 60, 70 miles an hour, yeah. hanging on and shooting, you know, back the other way at the riders there are helicopters everywhere. I mean, they've got it down to a science where it's really cool. Yeah. Uh, I wanted to ask you, I found uh, in an interview you did last year with Helen Ross, you said that of all the sports you've called golf is the hardest. Mm -hmm. Is that, is that right? And I'm just curious why that is. All right. Anything else you call, how many balls are in play? One ball, one game ball. There you go. How many fields of play? One field. Right? So on golf, there's 18 arenas that you're trying to keep track of at the same time. Um, you call a basketball game. Yeah, it's fast moving. Yeah, you got to keep up. But it's right in front of you. Everybody's seeing what you're seeing. Football, same way. In golf, it's happening simultaneously on 18 fields of play. So in the truck, 
production truck, they're pulling it in from all different directions and deciding where to go to next. And it's happening at the same time, so they'll delay it a little bit here. I might say it's delayed if it's, it's delayed enough to where it matters. But as an announcer, you're constantly, as the producer is telling you, all right, we're going to 14 second shot Mickelson. If that's all you want to say, and sometimes it's all you're able to say, fine. That's the basic. But what you're trying to do is give a little depth to it then. So as soon as you hear where you're going next, you go straight to your computer. And I'm trying to pull up the name Phil Mickelson, where he is, why, he's, why is this his third shot from 195 yards? Well, he hit it. Well, sorry, Phil. I mean, I know it happens, but well right <laughs> Probably, off the tee. Yeah, I was yeah. going to say, well right or well left. Yeah, it's <laughs> and, and had to play back to here in the fairway, and now this is his third from just under 200 yards. Oh, he's coming off two straight birdies. Before that, he had four straight pars, but a tough start for him, double boat. All of this is happening in real time. You're, you don't have time for a spotter like in football or a uh, stats person they have that help. You don't have time in the moment to do all that. It's you going to the computer and then trying to keep track, and then you might be going from there somewhere else. You want to set that up. Why does it matter that we're going to show, um, you know, Ricky Fowler back at the fourth hole right now at this point? So it, it, it's pulled in from 18 different places constantly. Is that How often is that producer in your ear? Is that pretty constant? It's not constant, but it's, it's certainly before you go anywhere, before you go from one hole to another. While you're there, the producer might be saying, hey, we're going to keep it here. So then you know you can talk about the other two guys in the group or where they are. They're letting you know, hey, hey this reminds me. Let's, let's run that soundbite from Ricky from yesterday that we have that plays well here. So then you're going to remember what that bite was and set it up and throw it to that bite. The producers know not, not to talk nonstop in your ear because you're trying to talk to America and beyond, um, but they're giving you all the information you need and in as uh, brief and succinct a way as possible. Do you feel like a traffic cop? I, like I just yeah. envision it's just like you yeah, know, that's constantly. Exactly what you feel like. That's what, <laughs> as a host, as a play-by-play, yeah. that's exactly what yeah. you feel like in golf. Um, and hopefully, you, you remember dead air is your friend. Sometimes yeah. let it play. Mm-hmm. Don't talk too much. No, that's the constant balance. When do I bring in Faldo? Like when do I pick his brain? Do we want to do it here? Do I want to hold off and just watch? When do I bring in Judy Rankin and get her opinion? Uh, sensing the flow of the telecast. And now we got great audio and and we can hear caddy player talk. And and, and let me go on record as saying, (laughs) I apologize if I ever talk over some, there are sometimes I can't hear it. We can't hear it. You at home might be able to hear it and it's not going. So we do talk over them sometime. We try not to, because that's great. I mean, in the NBA, you do a game, you, you are pleading with them to allow you to have a mic in there during a timeout to hear a coach talk to the players. That's what a caddy player conversation is. And to me, it is fascinating. Um, Even if, even if it's 154 yards, you know, I I think the wind is a little bit against, I think we need to back off here, whatever it is that might be mundane sometimes. It's interesting to me because it goes to what the player's thinking and why we're going to see what we see. Mm -hmm. I, I echo that same sentiment as a as a fan and you know regular yeah. viewer of golf. I, that's yeah, just just 
you know, you feel like you're in on it at that point when you hear the player and, and caddy, you know, if, going through their process. If we can bring you to the golf course as much as possible, that's what I want to do. Yeah. Or any, any sport. If I can bring the viewer to the course. It, it's ironic through the years because the more we're now used to so much on screens, you know, information and graphics and everything else at the same time that our picture has gotten better than ever. And we, we crystal clear that, you know, you can see mm -hmm. high def and beyond 4K. Um, but I understand the attention span of people, me included. That's what you want. You want all that stuff. And I, I get it. And, and I'm not against that. I'm for it. It's, it's just funny that the better the picture gets, the more graphics we have <laughs> yeah. to cover up the picture. Well, you do both LPGA and PGA Tour. Is one more difficult than the other, or is it a pretty similar process for you? No, I don't really see much of a difference in, okay. in, in calling golf yeah. or what I see and watch. And No, it's, it's pretty much the same. There are differences between the two, sure, uh, but calling it is the same, and the athletes are just as impressive on one as the other. The pressure is the same. The moment is the same. Um, you know, here at the CME, for example, I get some people say, well, you keep talking about $1.5 million for first place. That's what they play for every week on the PGA Tour. It's all relative. Mm -hmm. I wish the purses were more here, and maybe this is helping get it there. They deserve it. They, they, but to a player who finished 60th on the CME list, the season-long race, to get into the field this week, have a chance to win it all, $1.5 million is going to change your life. We were, yeah, I was talking about an anecdote on a, another podcast we recorded this week, but someone like Cheyenne Knight, who really was in danger of, of losing her status this year, was a rookie. You got um, it. And, and she, she won late Wins. in the season, qualifies, I think, 57th yeah. on, the, on the points list, and now is here. You know, I, I don't know what she's made in her brief career, but $1.5 million if she won – you know, who did we, um, we look at today? Nelly Korda, actually, the first two years, really good years. Um, the last two years, over a million dollars, two wins this year. One, but 1.5 million would be more than she won in either one of those two years. Yeah, yeah. So, I, I want to. I'm curious about your uh, personal history with the game of golf. Did you play growing up? Yeah, I did. We 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 didn't belong to a country club. Um, I played public golf in Joliet, Illinois, at Inwood and Woodruff. Um, in Wedgwood and would go out and play with my friends. I was a basketball guy, so I spent most days at the playground playing basketball. But, yeah, we played quite a bit of golf. Uh, my dad played. He'd have a weekend game with his buddies, a few dollars on the line. So I'd ride in the cart with him, and he'd let me get out and hit a shot every now and then. Uh, and he'd be either very happy when he left the golf course or very angry. Um, and it was a part, yeah, and, and my, my biggest memories of the game as a kid, though, are more sitting in the living room on the couch with him and my mom, she's a big sports fan, and watching Jack and even Arnold before that um, or during that time, but, you know, I was a little bit young, but Trevino and the great showdowns they'd have and the, Sunday charges, and so that's that's my early memory of the game. Are you able to play much these days? Here and there, I'd love to play more, and someday I am going to do that. Uh, but yeah, I, yeah, I play. I play. I live in LA, and 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 play there, and uh, play on the road more than anything with these guys. 
So I'm, I'm never the best <laughs> in my foursome. I'm, I'm playing with Matt Gogol and Kurt Byram and those guys and Frank Nabilo I played with and, and Nick Faldo. And so it's, uh, it's fun. It's really a lot of fun. I'm decent, but I, I don't want to get much better right now because then I'll care too much. Yeah. Oh. Instead of just going out to spend the, that time on the golf course with my friends and enjoying it, because then I'll, then I'll be out there practicing like crazy. And I, I know that's the way you should be and everything, else, but at, at some point, if I have more time, I'll do that. I don't have enough time to spend the time to practice to become really good. So it's okay. I, I love when I play. Those guys play money games? Any? Oh, uh, or not, any real. Specific, not really. No, no. Any? no. I mean, we, we might throw something down to just have fun. No, uh-uh. Uh, most of the guys, it, it's funny, most of the players who are now announcers out here, they'll go out and play and absolutely play like we did as kids, just absolutely for fun. And then have little games within a game and, and closest to the pin here, uh, bet you cold one, first one in kind of thing. No, it's a lot of fun. It's not serious golf because they did it seriously. That's the last thing they want yeah. is to go out there and care too much and grind on the <laughs> golf course. <laughs> that's yeah. That's I, I hadn't really thought of it that way, but that, you know that what makes I mean? total it's the sense. Exact opposite. Yeah. It, it would be like me going out to play a pickup game in basketball now, which which I am too old now. I was going to ask if I you still play. Can, nah, I, I, I might as well jump to that. Do man, you? I, I went. I just cut out to the wing, caught a pass, planted, and then turned around to yell at the guy who landed on my calf. Uh, on the back of my ankle, and there was nobody there. <laughs> so oh. you go, oh, man, tore a calf. That was about four years ago. And I said, okay, that's it. No more hoops. Can't do this anymore. I know the jump shot never leaves, though. Yeah, you can still shoot. You, yeah, you, I can you, play horse. I was going to say, you got to be a dangerous horse Maybe player. Maybe you still. and I will go out there, and uh, we will put some money on that. <laughs> uh, you can't run a jump anymore. I can shoot. Um, but but you care to – you you look, you wonder why I can't go by this guy anymore. Wait, the jab step – Crossover, I used to blow by this guy, and now I'm not doing it, and it, it makes you angry. So the guys who played, the black bar, you know, comes out and plays. They don't want to care too much at this point because it would get to them that you know what you used to do without even thinking, and now you can't do it anymore. It's so funny you said that. I, I like I said, I'm 36, and over the last two years, I've I've gone, I've lived that where really. Playing pickup, you know, I play very regularly, and it just gets to the point where you just can't. Your body doesn't. Re you just can't do what you used to be able to do. Because your mind's still there. Your mind still thinks yeah. you can. and you still see things, and you want to do things, and it just doesn't. You know, it. it Were well, you a perimeter just player or a post player? Yeah, I was. So I, I like to joke. I was a, uh, a you know point guard, shooting guard, kind of trapped in a bigger, bigger man's it's body. Yeah, so I was I was a I was a six six high school point guard. Um, oh wow! You know, slender as a rail, uh, kind of allergic to the paint. Loved to hang out outside the three point yeah. line, and then moved more to the wing uh, in college. But uh, I, I had a coach who God, we would butt heads because he wanted me to play more. You know, interior, inside. get inside more, and it just. I it's don't not know. Me. No, it wasn't do. me. It wasn't me. Yeah. I, I would I would float out to twenty two feet if you know, just looking to catch and shoot. 
but you grew up with a three point line yeah. fully established. So the game had changed yeah. at that point. Yeah. I mean, there are a few post players around, but not really anymore. Yeah. You know? it, but you can't, so you can't, you're, you were still trying to play up until a few years ago and now. Yeah. Cause I, you know, I would, well, I, I, I told you, you know, before I moved to Jacksonville, 18 months ago, I was coaching uh, at, mm-hmm. a, at a really good high school in Columbus, Upper Arlington, actually, Jack's, Jack's mm-hmm, Old High School. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, one of the most fun things was playing open gyms. And so, you know, all summer we'd, we'd have kind of a coach's old man team and, you know, we'd play the high school guys and different teams would come in and, you know, you'd play Monday nights too at, at the local Y yeah. and, and just getting all kinds of different games. Yeah. Um, you know, there would be alumni that would come home and it, it was a ton of fun. And really, since I moved down to Florida, I mean, I could, of course, you can start to sense it uh, while you're playing. It, it, it's just a little bit, you know, everybody around you just seems more athletic and faster. And it's like, uh, okay, um, some of this is. But then you start to get hurt. Well, and that's what I, I was I most afraid of. No. Yeah. And I've heard so many horror stories about Achilles specifically, well, had, which I, is. Mine was. Yeah. Not an Achilles, but it could have. It was a torn calf that was like an Achilles. I had a boot on for six weeks, and I'm, you know, going up the tower at the Arnold Palmer Invitational to the high with a boot on, and I'm like, okay, this this is not worth it yeah. anymore. But I miss it, man, because there's nothing like the feeling of, and I, and I know this exists in every sport, and and we we're seeing it here. Say, Young Kim, kind of one of those players who gets in the zone and just goes, just goes low. As a shooter, there is nothing like the feeling of being in the zone, and you know it. You don't know how to make yourself get there, but you know it, and you know if you touch the ball, it's going in. Mm-hmm. And 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 you would get that even in pickup games every now and then, and you live for those moments. Mm. I mean, I I still dream about those moments. I was gonna say coming coming off a screen or you know cutting, and and you just the the feet get set underneath you, that the ball arrives, and it's just. I've never like you had said, that. You just know it's going in. I've never had that on a golf course, right? right. I'm not that low, you know, like five or six. That's what. Um, but in basketball, I have, and to this day, I'd give anything to have one more game where that was true. I, th- I think the thing that I miss most about basketball too is that th- there's nothing better when you get five guys. I like to say, kind of making music on the court, mm-hmm. right? When, when everybody's in sync. And kind of you, you develop that flow as a team, man. When you when 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 you know where that guy's going to be, he knows where you're going to be. You have each other's back on defense. Yeah. It's you know maybe an extra pass. That's to me, string. it doesn't get. It's, it's an orchestra. It, it's pulled in at yes. exactly the right time, and you know it. And that's what I would if I played an individual game. Like you cover golf now, and uh, figure skating, go cover and call that. Uh, track and field I, I've called and individual sports they're they're different athletes mindset wise they are because that's why it's so tough I think for many people to go play in the Ryder Cup or the President's Cup um, and there's so much pressure when you're playing alternate shot because you're not used to being a part of a team and relying on someone else and not letting someone else down you know for a team athlete you're used to that mm-hmm. and what that's like. And you also know what it's like when it all clicks, when you yeah. are part of that. And it's, it's pretty cool. 
it's yeah, there, there's nothing better. Um, I, I'll get you. I just have a couple more questions, and I'll I'll, sure. I'll get you out of here. Enjoying this. Um, you, you've been all over the world. Do you have a favorite city? Favorite Saint country? Petersburg, Russia. Really? Yep. Okay. Love Paris. Love a lot of different places. Saint Petersburg, Russia. My favorite city to go spend time in. And we went there a lot. Actually, first time I was there was the Goodwill Games in 1993. ABC did it there. I was when I was with ABC, um, and stayed on a cruise ship in the Gulf of Finland. And it wasn't that long after the fall of communism and the Soviet Union and everything. And it was a fascinating place because it's imperial. It's the history. It's Peter the Great. He built the city out of nothing on marshes. And it was the window to the west. He was opening up Russia to the west. The architecture, the history, the food, just the feel of it is unlike any other city in the world. And it's much different than like Moscow, which is more bureaucratic and uh, now it's very expensive and nightclubs and everything else. It's like old Russia in St. Petersburg. Yeah. For as much as you travel, do you have any good travel tips or any kind of <laughs> travel hacks that, that you've uncovered that you could share with, with people? I don't know. It's getting harder to travel. I guess I'm getting older. I used to just get on the time zone that I, I land in and <laughs> automatically go. Drink a lot of water. That's it. It's a real revolutionary travel tip, right? That's, yeah, that's, uh, I, that might don't be do, the don't most important. Don't drink too much alcohol on the flight and drink some water because it <laughs> does make a difference. Yeah. Having called so many different events, different sports, are there still goals out there for you? Things that you haven't done that you'd like to do? There are dreams. There aren't goals. I was always one, and I get nothing against goals, and I think people who set goals, it can be very valuable for people. For me, if I go back to growing up as a basketball player, again, I wanted to play at the highest level. I wanted to play at the biggest, most important university I could on TV in the big moments and, and play for a national championship. I didn't know where that meant. You know, it ended up being NC State. And it was great. And set up the rest of my life. In broadcasting, I never set out to say, okay, in two years I want to be here, in five years here. And looking back, it was the right decision for me, not for everybody, but because I, I would have closed off avenues that came my way by staying on the path that I had set out. I would have never been open to going to do figure skating. And now, you know, I'm doing figure skating at the Olympics with Tara Lipinski and Johnny Weir now. Who could have envisioned that when I was starting out from NC State? Um, are, are they as fun off oh, yeah, camera right. as they are? Yeah, they're just on like they're just off the air. They're just like they are on the air, and that's our goal. We we don't really talk about what we're going to say on camera or the open or nothing. We we just okay. We need to cover these three points, but however that shakes out, and and they will say stuff that oftentimes I'll go, hey, wait a minute, what? <laughs> What'd you just say? Explain that. I, I have no idea what you're talking about. Yeah, they're great. They're they're really good friends, and it's it's a really fun in the moment group to be around and he you know he's a character she is too in her own way and they're great it's a really cool team it kind of sounds like uh you know that that team chemistry you know that yeah. we just talked about with you find it on the basketball court you can find it in many different settings it, it sounds like you guys have tapped into that we we did the sochi we had worked together some and then the sochi olympics was the first real big thing that we did and we weren't the primetime crew, we were the daily crew on live on NBCSN. And um, 
you know, the night before, I remember sitting at dinner and kind of said, you know what, let's just be not different, not try to be different, but let's not be constrained in any way. Let's not do the TV formula. Let's just sit there and be like the people sitting at home watching. And, and so there are mistakes that are made and certain things you don't catch because you're, you're not planning on doing A, B, and C and making sure you cover all bases. But man, it's fun in the moment because it, it, it might take you anywhere. And from that moment on, the, the Sochi kind of went, okay, yeah, this is fun. This, this kind of works and it's great. Well, I can tell you, just personally speaking, I've watched much more figure skating than <laughs> I think I maybe otherwise would have just because of, it's so important though, when, when the, the chemistry in the booth and it's, in, it's entertaining, I mean, we've talked about it with different aspects of golf, but it just really comes through the television. And at least for me, it's like I, I could watch pretty much anything. If It's like taking classes from certain professors, right? If they're entertaining yeah. and they make the subject matter interesting, I'm, I'm all in. Right. And I, it doesn't matter what it is. And, and I feel that way with broadcasting That's a little bit, too. That's what TV is. Yeah. That's what, not just TV, but anything on the air, yeah. Um, make the person at home want to spend that time with you however you can. Tell them why the person's important, the people out there are important, competing, document the action, but then make them want to spend that time with you. However you do it. There are a number of different, because you got different relationships. I can't have the same banter or teamwork with Nick Faldo or Judy Rankin as I have with Terry Lipinski and Johnny Weir. It's a little different. It's just a little different. The form it takes, right? (laughs) So you have to learn what works together. But with both of those people that I just mentioned, I have a great time and a different relationship on the air with them. And, uh, you know, it, hopefully it makes people want to watch or at least keep watching what they started watching. But it's but it's different. you got to find that, whoever you're working with. You can't just, I don't think, go by formula and create that. Yeah. Uh, I promise, just two more questions. Basketball coaches and players that you really admire – uh, today, are there certain guys, certain coaches that you find yourself watching and, and appreciating? Well, I become a Clippers fan because I live in LA, and Vinny Del Negro, who I played with at NC State, was the head coach. And I had small kids then; now they're grown. They're both at USC in college, and so we started to go to a lot of Clippers games. I'll always be a Bulls fan. I'll always be loyal to Chicago. And but I love Doc Rivers. I think Doc's a players' coach who makes guys want to play for him and, mm-hmm. and play hard for him. I should not just play for him, play hard. And it's one of the reasons, yes, money, but one of the reasons that they got the guys they got, Kawhi and Paul George this year, is because they want to play for Doc. And I've been able to spend some time around him. And he was at Marquette when I was thinking about maybe going to Marquette and playing. And he grew up in Chicago, so knew him from the summer leagues there. Love him. Mike Krzyzewski, he's a Hall of Famer in every way. Um, he's, a, he's, he's a hard-edged guy. I mean, he's, he's a, he played for Bobby Knight. He learned Bobby Knight. But what he's done at Duke is unbelievable. Pop, Greg Popovich, I think. But you got to have the players, too. And uh, it's crazy. I, the other day, I, you know, I saw some things about how Pop is washed up and all this. Come on. They don't have the same players that they did. Right. And he didn't change as a coach, but I used to spend time with him when I was covering the NBA, doing games. Before the game, you go in and you, you meet with the coaches, interview them, and I got a chance to spend some good time with Greg Popovich in his office 
and we didn't talk basketball at all. We talked Russia, CIA, international relations, and that's what he was going to do at the last minute he became a college basketball coach and eventually the NBA. Yeah, he, uh, he's someone who I, I feel like fits that well-rounded, kind of worldly, like, like you said, he's, he's yeah. very well-read. and. Yeah. Oh, yeah, he, yeah absolutely. He could, we sat there and talked about Putin for 40 minutes. Yeah, yeah. Um, I, I got to, so the, the coach I, and it's more, I mean, hell of a guy off the court, but the, the, the coach I find myself watching the most on the college level is Tony Bennett and, and what he's uh, been yeah. able to do at, at UVA and just defensively how good that team is. And it, it's just, I, I know... I know some people think it's ugly basketball. Yeah, there are some who would it's, say it's well, bad basketball, this, but, but God, you know, a, a good defensive possession is about the most beautiful thing in my book. And because it's not just about playing hard. It, it defense is playing hard, but once you get all the principles down, and their defensive principles, it goes back to what you were talking about a short time ago about knowing. On a string, this goes here, I got to go here. He goes and takes a chance here, I back him up here. And they are so good. Yeah, they're so well coached. He's, he's one of the best, no question. Yeah. Um, all right, last question. <laughs> How much grief do you still get about the uh, charge call in the 83 title game? <laughs> you know what? I'll take all the grief anybody sends my way. I mean, I, yes, I tackled Clyde Drexler. It was, one of, it was a butt-kiss-like tackle in the national championship game. But it was his fourth foul. He shouldn't have been on the floor, so I don't feel too bad. And to this day, I'm, I'm gonna, I should read you the text if I can get, this is how close <laughs> our team was and is. I'm on the plane coming here a couple of days ago, and a whole chain text started with our cha national championship team. And Sidney Lowe, who's in the NBA, said, TG, second most important play in 1983 behind Lorenzo Charles' final dunk your charge on Drexler. And I said, yep, it was a charge. It was called that way. It's my story. I'm sticking to it. I've, I've read, you know, it, it, it was called a charge. It'll forever be a charge. You know, it, it's, God, that's, that's so good. I wrapped him up a little bit, okay, with the arms. <laughs> uh, well, Terry, this was, like I said, I could, I could talk basketball with you for, you know, a, a few more hours at least. Um, congratulations, by the way, on getting inducted along with the, the rest of the team into the North Carolina State Hall of Fame, Athletic Hall of Fame. And uh, thank you so much for your time today. Really, really appreciate it. Can't tell you how much fun this was. And I'll talk hoops anytime and, and golf and whatever else you want to talk. You awesome. guys are great, by the way. Very Congratulations on all your success. Really appreciate it. Thank you.